Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mino Line Media presents the Olivia Fox Podcast. Welcome to the Olivia Fox Podcast. I am she, she is me, and we are up in here for another week. I have to thank each and every one of you for tuning in during our Black History Month. You know how I feel about this, though. Black History Month is 12 months a year, 365. And uh, I just want to say thank you. You guys have been telling folks, telling a friend to tell a friend about our podcast. And I'm so very thankful. So we're just going to keep it moving here in season two. Today, we are talking to a, I don't want to say a young brother, because, you know, I know I'm a little bit young and he looks like he's about my age. So we could be both young. <laughs> but I found this brother on LinkedIn and I just found his profile so interesting and the information that he was capable of sharing with us. And I thought it would be a great interview for our podcast. So without further ado, I would like to welcome to the Olivia Fox podcast, Bill Davis. Hello. Hello, Olivia. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Now that I'm here on your podcast, I'm doing much better. (laughs) First, I want to thank you so much for accommodating me and also congratulate you on everything you've been able to do. To me, knowledge is the greatest power. We've heard it's kind of a cliche, but the things that you are able to talk about and bring to light and kind of break some stereotypes, I think it needs to be out there. So I'm so glad you were able to join us today. Now, let's get into it. Bill Davis, tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. So my name is Bill Davis. I was born and raised in New Jersey, born in Newark, raised in a town called Plainfield. And I'm an educator by profession. <clears throat> Excuse me, and <clears throat> I'm a single father, and so um, and I've worked in various capacities in higher education over the course of my career, and part of what motivates me, and I appreciate the fact that we're having this conversation during African American History or Black History Month, and I'm hopeful that in your prior conversations that you talked about Carter G. Woodson, who was the founder of what was then Negro History Week. And he started in 1926. We're 98 years into the celebration of Negro History Week or Black History Month. And when Carter G. Woodson founded it, he chose February because of Frederick Douglass's birthday and Abraham Lincoln's birthday. And so while people comment that it's the shortest month of the year, but in reality, it was because of those particular individuals that he selected February. And for all of us who are of African ancestry, it's a time for us to be unapologetically appreciative of being black or of African ancestry. And so I studied Africana studies when I was an undergraduate student. I've had the privilege of teaching Africana studies as a as an adult professional. And I think that the better that we are, that we understand our history, understand the challenges that we currently face, the easier it is for us to come together and take some steps in order for things to improve. And so whenever there's an opportunity to come to a platform such as yours and share some information and to make sure that we are very 
clear and collective about how we see what we're doing, then I appreciate these opportunities. Well, we appreciate you. Um, I have to say that the one main reason why I really wanted to talk to you, because I feel like in this country, really all over the world, but specifically here, because of our history of racism and white supremacy in this country, it seems to me that we are being attacked on every front from affirmative action being struck down by the Supreme Court. We're also seeing, you know, diversity, inclusive programs being attacked, especially in certain states like Florida and Texas. And it just seems like we're moving more backwards as far as um, history and where we are in terms of race relations. What are your thoughts on all the types of things that we're seeing and hearing, not only in the media, but just in everyday life. Well, your critique is very accurate. And so I'm hoping that, and if you can possibly get her as a guest, we're absolutely awesome. There's a book called White Rage. And so the sister that wrote the book teaches at Emory University. And so what she documents in the book, her name is Carol Anderson. What she documents in the book is that every time we make progress, that there's a response, a very hostile response from whites. And so if we look at what happened at the end of the Civil War, when our ancestors came out of slavery, then there was the period of Reconstruction. And so Reconstruction lasted 11 years, but then after Reconstruction, that's what led to the creation of the Klan. That's what led to the creation of the Jim Crow laws. And so there were whites were trying to find a way to put us back into something and did put us back into something comparable to slavery. So then in the 1950s, when the Montgomery bus boycott took place, when we started to really push forward, when Emmett Till was killed and all of those things took place, most people don't notice that King was only 26 years old when the Montgomery bus boycott took place. And so that sprang him into national leadership. I mean, King was 26 when he started the Montgomery bus boycott. He was 39 when he was assassinated. So the brother really only had 13 years to really be on the scene and try to make some of the changes that we've been fighting for. But then after the, during the civil rights movement, when Nixon got in, Nixon then started to use racial tropes in order to get whites to push us back again. That's when drugs started to be permeate through the community. That's when violence started to be permeated. That's when mass incarceration started. And so every time we've made an advancement, there's been a, a very hostile pushback by white folks. When Barack Obama got elected, then White folks, listen, you know, we're in post-racial, blah, 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 blah. And the current fool that's running in the, the, uh, I mean, the Republican primary used that to galvanize white racists to push back against black people. And so then put these three people on the Supreme Court that have cut all different things. You know, they've cut affirmative action for women. They've taken the women's right to her bodily autonomy away. I mean, so there have been various steps that have been taken in order, the country is on the verge of becoming predominantly people of color. And so for whites, they want to find a way to use minority control in order to be able to stay in power. And so whether it's voting rights, whether it's affirmative action, whether it's DEI, all the different things that might be an avenue for us to be able to move forward, they want to find a way to take it away. Because when we exercise all of our rights, our right to vote, our right to boycott, our right to organize, our right to educate, which is why they want to take education away about African-American studies in all the different places. 
once we start to really learn and understand how we can flex some of our ability to be able to make change, that frightens white people in the most significant way. And so any way that they can find a way to restrain our advancement forward, that's what they're committed to do. You know, in 2020 with um, COVID, when we had all the marches going on all over the country um, as a result of the death of George Floyd, they basically took Black Lives Matters and villainized it, just like anything that focuses on us. And yet the Black Lives Matter movement was more of a global movement. It wasn't just here. We were seeing people all over the world that were marching and participating. But it seems like not only with them, but as within our own race, uh, people have kind of started making negative commentary and viewing it as something not conducive to the movement of Black people. We've kind of villainized Black Lives Matter ourselves. What are your thoughts on that? But that's, that's always been true. I mean, if you think about it, Nat Turner, Denmark, B.C., Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, some of the great names that we know when our ancestors were enslaved, right? Some of those rebellions, there were people within the group that told, right? I mean, so we should not be surprised. And so we should always remember that there will be some of us who are going to identify with the oppressor. In every group, there are people that identify with the oppressor, that feel in some way, shape, or form. I mean, I'm sure you've probably heard this expression, that the white man's ice is colder. And so for some of us, we have that opinion that, you know, we've been socialized and conditioned and brainwashed to a point to believe that, you know, white people are supposed to be in charge and that they don't, we don't trust each other. And so one of the greatest, Carter G. Woodson, who founded Negro History Week, his book was called The Miseducation of the Negro. He wrote that book a hundred years ago. And so when you look at the way that some of us are socialized and think now, that sadly a hundred years later is still true. And so um Franz Fanon, you know, when he talked about black skin, white mask, I mean, you know, that it's still the case that, you know, we have a lot of different people who choose to believe that white people are going to make decisions. I mean, I was listening to a brother recently who's doing some really good work here in New Jersey. And he said that sometimes the hardest thing for us to do is to accept that the problems that white folks have created, we cannot go to them for the solution, that we have to find the solutions within ourselves. And for some of us, it's hard to believe that we have the answers. New Jersey has one of the highest mortality rate for Black women. Mm -hmm. And so for Black women in childbirth, and New Jersey is one of the richest states in the country. It's a democratic state. But, be, but despite all of those things, the death rate for Black women during childbirth is one of the highest in the country. And wow. so we have to find a way for Black physicians, for Black doulas, for mothers to make sure they get the appropriate uh, prenatal care and all that kind of stuff. We have to do that. We're going to be the ones that are going to make the decisions that's going to help to change this. But some people believe that white people have to have the answers for the problems that we face. When in reality, the answers are with us. We just have to trust ourselves enough to make it happen. And I'm glad you mentioned that because it's a great segue into black Republicans. Now, we have seen, as you said, this fool that's running for president again, representing the Republican Party. He's kind of hijacked the, the, the party and they're pushing forward. They're standing behind this man. And I believe he was at a black Republican convention of some sort, a gathering. And he made some comments. I don't know these specific words, but basically... Black people are running 
from Biden, running from the Democrat Party and coming to him because his mug shot and the tennis shoes, these $400 shoes that he's put out, that black people like tennis shoes. So we're running towards as if we were that simplistic. You know what I mean? So we're we're seeing that just continuing and continuing. And when you talked about the um, non-African-American, non-people of color becoming the minority, I believe someone said or I read somewhere the 2040 consensus they were talking about, that's when it was going to happen. So for me, I feel like I'm seeing a lot of desperation. Would you agree? Yes. And so... Um... I'm not sure if the Bonham and Bailey Circus came to your vicinity of the country, but one of the things, one of their main taglines was there's a fool born every day. And so sadly, I mean, and so there are some black conservatives, which is what 45 was speaking at. There are some black conservatives who may have some very some very valid reasons for why they believe that the Republican party even under this crazy iteration that 45 is trying to, is taking for it. And even for me, the only one would be financial that if you're in a certain social class, then the tax cuts help you. Then, you know, you can make that argument from that perspective. But other than that, that would be the only halfway rational. But when you listen to the clown show that this guy is perpetrating, then anybody who pays any, gives any serious consideration to the ignorance that he's spouting, right? I mean, but he has, you know, millions of people who believe the garbage that he's doling out. And so I want you to think about this. Tish James, who's black, Alvin Bragg, who's black, Fonnie Willis, who is black, it's all black people that are legally taking him down. He has to pay the state of New York almost a half a billion dollars. So if you have the $400 raggedy sneakers that he put out at a hot, at a thousand, if he sells a thousand of them, that's $400,000. They've that sold out. Close, that helps to close the gap of money that he needs. Right? So I want you to think about the fact that this guy's a grifter. He's been grifting, taking advantage of, you know, foolish people all along. And so grifters will grift. And so as long as he's able to continue to run this scam, he's going to run it. The thing that I haven't really heard very much conversation about, he's going to be convicted in New York. The only way he will not be convicted is if Cohen, who was his main guy, somehow mysteriously never makes it to court. If Cohen gets to court and Cohen brings all the records and tells where all the bodies are buried, there's no way that he could get out of that. If the judge, if the panel leaves Fonnie Willis in place, Trump will be convicted in Georgia. He's going to be convicted in New York. If they allow Fannie Willis to continue the prosecution in Georgia, he's going to be convicted there. So the question that I have not heard anybody really respond to yet is that because if you're convicted, you can't run, which is why I think that, um, what's her name, is staying in the race. And so, you know, because at some point, if Trump is convicted, they'll have to take him off, right? He'll be out of the election. And so... And it's going to be interesting to see how it unfolds in the next maybe six to eight weeks. But at some point, I know he can appeal, but once he is convicted, does that conviction preclude him from actually continuing his candidacy? You know, I never thought about that. I was just listening to the news before I joined you about Nikki Haley. And a lot of people were like, well, why is she staying in the race? But what you just said now 
it makes complete and total sense. We keep hearing not only from Nikki Haley, but from pundits as well about racism getting better, that we should be uh, a look, view the United States as a little bit more positive or all the way to the other extreme where America's not a racist country that Nikki Haley stated. Why do you think people can sit up with a straight face and say this foolishness without missing a step, a beat? Well, Nikki Haley, who, and I guess you know the backstory. Yes. You know, her family came here from India because of racism. Her parents had to end up working in historical black colleges in order to be able to support themselves. The dresses that her mother made were sold primarily to black people. So Nikki Haley's family was a victim of racism. So as a political prostitute, which is most of what most of them are, then you have to be able to justify things that aren't justifiable. South Carolina was the state that started the Civil War. South Carolina was the state in which cotton was cotton and rice became such critical crops that that's the reason that they succeeded in order to have their own country because they intended to make so much money. In fact, New York was the primary financial center in the country. Had the South won the Civil War, Charleston would have been the financial center of the country. And so Nikki Haley is just, you know, um, I'm trying to remember her Indian name, which she does, which she chooses not to use. Right. Something like that. And so, so Nikki Haley is a political prostitute. So she's going to say what the people who support her want to hear her say. And so, you know, it's selective memory. So like, listen, you know, we know slavery was the cause of the Civil War. We know that racism is present. And so when you mentioned George Floyd, which is one of the things that helped Biden win, and I'm not in any way desiring for there to be another George Floyd moment. That moment has been incredibly painful for us. I mean, just watching the genocide in Gaza right now, it's just painful enough. And so I, I don't know if you know Biden's nickname. They call him Genocide Joe because he's condoning the and sending money and weapons to Israel to continue to kill the Palestinians. And so I'm not desiring to see another George Floyd moment. But for the millions of people that were demonstrating all over the world, I don't know if you remember the SARS case in Nigeria. The yes. Nigerian police were running around beating people. So this issue of police brutality happens every place. And the um, the young sister who actually captured the video, right? So now we cannot, there's no question about whether or not it was a gruesome, horrific murder, right? We got it real clear. You know, Chauvin sitting there looking at it. What the hell are you looking at? I'm killing this guy and there's nothing you can do about it. That definitely touched a whole lot of people. Different corporations put up money and all that kind of stuff in order to try to clear their conscience about, you know, the way that these things were taking place. And so, but now, you know, we have a very brief window. That window is closed. And so now we are four years later. Biden's running again. You know, 45 and his foolish ass is running again. And so, you know, barring something that's really going to spark people back into momentum. We'll see. It's going to be very interesting. It's going to be very interesting. I want to switch gears because I know a few years ago you wrote this amazing book. And I really wanted to talk about this because the state of the Black family, people, our people are always, to me, in my opinion, 
we're always trying to put one thing as the reason why the breakdown of the fam black family is happening. For example, um, single black women households, black men not being in the households for various reasons. And that's why I really, really wanted to talk about your book because you're a single father, correct? Yes, ma'am. And you wrote this amazing book called Baba and the Crew, the story of a single black father's journey to redemption. If you could tell me, um, what was your main motivation in writing this book and what do you hope people to take from it? Um, well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to share. Baba is the Swahili word for father, which is what my children call me. And my father, who's an ancestor now, gave my children the name the crew. And so I've been a single dad for over 30 years. They were three, five, seven, and nine when I became a single father. And whenever we would go places, people would always ask me, you know, am I going to write about this journey that we've been on? And I was always intrigued by the idea, but I've always, you know, um, accepted the fact that I was fortunate my father was in my life. And so, you know, from the perspective of seeing to some degree, my father was present, but not present at the same time, right? So I would see my father in the morning before I'd go to school and I wouldn't see him again until the next day. And so, but on Sundays, we'd have family gatherings, we'd take family trips and journeys and things like that. And so that aspect of parenting became real clear to me. And so um, I decided that, you know, my former wife was not in a position to be able to be really very much engaged in their life. So I made a decision that I had to do what I needed to do to take care of my children. I have family members that have been incarcerated. So I was really clear that the role that we play as parents is critical to some of the outcomes that will take place with our children. But I would tell my children this all the time. I'm not taking all the all the love because when they all mess up, I ain't taking all the blame. Right. So my task is to build a stage what you do on that stage is going to be up to you, but you're going to have a hell of a platform to work from. And so I was just really committed to the fact that, you know, um, I was going to make a decision and participate in a way that would allow my children to have opportunities, some of which I had, some of which I didn't. And, you know, that I went at the end of the day as a parent, we want to know that our conscience is clear that we did everything that we could do to make sure we did the best for our children paying it forward, right? And so, but I, on the question of the Black family, which is an event that I'm doing this Saturday, there are various factors that impact the Black family. One is that we, that this whole idea of the nuclear family, which is the mother, father, and children all in the same household, that's a standard by which we've been conditioned to believe is supposed to be the gold standard for how to raise children. There's elements of that that are not true. And so we have never been in a position to have the, the nuclear family. When we were in slavery, we could not legally marry. Right. Black women were raped and, you know, all different kind of crazy stuff happened in order for them to get more children and all that kind of thing. And so we've always been swimming upstream as far as trying to keep our family structure together. The fact that the black family is still viable is a significant accomplishment in and of itself. The other thing is that there have been several governmental and institutional factors that impact the black family. One is, and I don't know if you know this, black women graduate college twice straight of black men. 
Yes. And so to use the Christian term of evenly yoked for a black woman that graduated college, the pool of potential black male is very small. Right. Secondly, because of the stereotype, the quote unquote welfare queen, the baby drama mama and all that kind of stuff, then a lot of black women who are well educated don't want to be have children unless they have a mate because they don't want to be viewed through that stereotype. And so college educated black women have less children than people than black women that are not college educated. And so, you know, so we're faced with the fact that we have very limited control over how our images are projected. And so we hear the term welfare queen, which came popular under Reagan, then, you know, for the last 40 years plus, we've been operating from that space of not trying to be baby's kids or any of those negative stereotypes that are out there. And so, you know, mass incarceration has been another factor that's taken a lot of brothers off the scene. And so, you know, so there are some very serious institutional factors that contribute to the challenges that our families face right now. And we're disproportionately poor. And so when you look at the circumstances of my social class, black middle class is doing okay. Black people that are poor are catching help. So how do we find a way for the black middle class to be more supportive of black people that are poor? Because if a black woman, so you're familiar with the law of hypergamy, the law of hypergamy is that a woman is supposed to marry above her social class. And so a nurse is supposed to marry a doctor, right? Hmm. Black women marry below their social class more than any other group because that's the only way, or at least that's the most likely way for black women to find another black male. And so those are some of the challenges that we face. And we have not really had these kind of conversations in wide enough forums where we actually come up with some solutions about how to move forward. The most basic one would be to figure out how to make sure that black males are more successful in school. The better we could get more black males to be successful in school, then we could get more black males to graduate either from high school and or college and to get a trade, whether electrician, plumber, whatever it is. But until we get to that fundamental question of how do we make sure that young brothers are doing better in school, this challenge is going to continue to be what it is. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It seems like there aren't a lot of, um, like the event that you're doing uh, coming up from noon to two at Plainfield Library, where you're going to be talking about this very subject, but it doesn't seem like there are a lot of places where we can have these conversations. How do we change that? I think we can. I, I just think the Divine Nine, the Fraternity Sororities, the NAACP, the Urban League, I mean, there's, you know, there's Black Social Workers, which is one of the organizations that I'm partnering with, the Black Psychologists, there's Black Accountants, there's Black Engineers. There are a wide variety of Black organizations. And I just think that, you know, um, all we have to do is just decide to do it. But for whatever reason, and I'm not, and I really have to be honest, I don't know what the hesitancy is. I don't know why there's a Black Family Institute. I don't know if there's chapters statewide or regional or whatever, but these conversations are needed. And then in addition to the conversation, 
We need an action plan, right? And so to me, the sooner and the more clear we are about this is our objective. We need to help more young brothers be successful in school so that they can be husbands, fathers, you know, contributors to the family. How do we do that, right? There are mentor programs. There are, you know, like I used to do a program for high school students on Saturdays to help them, you know, pass their exams. We have, um, I don't know if you saw the movie Stand and Deliver. It's a very interesting movie in which, you know, Latin students were accused of cheating. And so one of the teachers helps them to prepare. And as part of that preparation, they had to stand and speak. And so one of the things that we need to do is make sure that our children are comfortable standing and articulating ideas and expressing themselves in some constructive form. And so that's what we would do. So we everybody have to introduce themselves, something they wanted to accomplish. And then we would break into groups, really math, science, social studies, whatever you need to help in. And I had a black scientist. I had a you know brother who was a poet and a math tutor. So, you know, I wanted students to be able to embrace this idea that you can A, the stereotype that scientists are all white or Asian, right? <laughs> B, so the brother that was the poet was also a math tutor that you could be both a poet and a math tutor, right? So it's contrary to this idea that you can only be talented in one area. But I think that the more that we can actually figure out a way to do something in, on a local level, it doesn't have to be, if it can expand larger, that's fine. But if not, if we know that we can, our graduation rate for black boys in particular is going to be improved, they're going to have better life choices, we can reduce the, I'm working on this project now with black families have children's special education. Most people, our community doesn't really talk much about this. The majority of young brothers that are incarcerated want special education. The majority of brothers who have altercations and negative outcomes with the police want special education. And so the same way that black women graduate college twice rate of black men, black men are almost twice as much as special ed as black women. And so until we figure out a way to make sure that these young brothers that are in special ed have more viable and healthy life choices, we're going to continue to be faced with this dilemma. And we, the NAACP, the Urban League, the Divine Nine, none of these organizations are having this conversation. And so, which is why Saturday when they do this event, the organizations that we were having another event in June, which we're going to invite stakeholders from across the state to come and have further conversation about this. It's up to us to make sure that we put these agendas front and center. Because if we don't, and, and so FUBU said it's for us, by us, we're going to save ourselves. We have to. We always have. So people think that Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation and the slavery. No, there were almost two, three hundred thousand black men that fought in the Civil War to end slavery. That's how, you know, the North won the war because whites didn't want to participate. And so it's up to us. We have always found a way to do this and we have to do this now. What do you think the role in um, technology of course, we were seeing more and more every day AI, but you were talking about young men learning how to stand up, you know, speak in public. And it seems to me, of course, our generation, but this newer generation, Gen Z that's coming up, they don't have a lot of opportunities to speak face to face. Everything's on the phone. So you have an entire generation in my opinion, unless someone intercepts, you know, their education, their skill set that aren't capable of really talking, speaking, articulating a thought, 
because everything is taxed. How do we get around that? Or can we utilize technology to achieve these goals? So, Olivia, we use the technology right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> you right. at home, I'm right. at home, and yet right. here we are exactly. having a conversation exactly. that needs to be had. Precisely. So, so what we have to do is just create opportunities for that to take place. There's a program in New Jersey, so on Saturday, and you'll be the first person I'm going to tell this to. There's an organization in New Jersey called the New Jersey Oratories. And so they get young people from like five years old and up, teach them how to make presentations. They can write their own speech. They can recite a speech. So there's a young brother, nine years old, that's going to speak on Saturday. And um, so we're going to have the adults do their presentations. Then I'm going to have my young brother before we get to the Q&A. He did a piece on W.E.B. Du Bois at an event I was at recently. Uh-huh. Yo, man, I, told, I know it's fine. I fam, you got to bring him on Saturday, man, because I want the adults in the room. Because sometimes as adults, we have a tendency to have some of the same, same negative stereotypes about our children other people do. And so we have to find a way not to allow the stereotypes that other people have of us and our children to impact the way that we operate. And so it's a way to bring some youthful positive energy to the event. When a man comes up and does this piece, it's going to, I can see the adults in the room now, like, oh, okay, now, you know, we can really move forward with how we need to figure out how to move, how we go in this direction. So, um, but I do think that, you know, there are ways and we can have, so when my children were coming up, we'd have dinner together. You couldn't have your phones at the table. You had to wait till dinner was over. When dinner is over, then you can go do whatever you have to go do. But while we're at the table together, we're not looking at the phones. We're having a conversation with each other. And so I think that there have to be some strategies that we use. When I'm, If I'm engaged, if I take somebody out and we're like, listen, can, can we just interact with each other? You know, the phones, whatever it is, unless it's an emergency, then, you know, we deal with that after the fact. But for now, we need to bring our attention to each other. So some of us just, you know, our lives are virtual as opposed to just living in person. Like we need to live in person, not in the virtual world, but in the real world, in the tangible world. And then sooner that we can help all of us to improve how we do that, the better the outcomes will be, not just for the children, but for our families and community. I totally agree. If someone's listening right now, they're on the East Coast, they want to come to your event. Can you give us uh, a website or information where they can find out more about it? Hmm. That's interesting. Um, they can email me. I should use my, all right. So I have several different emails. I'll try to, okay. So on my card, so I have a website called babauslegacy.com. And so the shortest email is baba at babauslegacy.com. And so it's B-A-B-A at B-A-B-A-L-E-G-A-C-Y. It will get to me, and I can certainly respond to them and give them information about how they can attend the event. It's free, open to the public, 12 to 2. I was raised in the in the community where the event is going to take place. And so um, I'm going to – I don't know if my track coach is going to be there. But for in the interest of full disclosure, when I was growing up, I stayed in trouble. I got kicked out of school all the time. And um, so – my, I ran track. And one of my track coaches, I had a book event there a few years ago. He was there. I had a chance to publicly acknowledge the fact that I appreciated him, you know, encouraging me 
down with the guys on the track team rather than knuckleheads in the community. And so I think that all of us at some point are the beneficiary of someone who invested in us and contributed to us and helped us to be able to overcome some of the personal or other issues that we may have had. And so, you know, um, which is one of the reasons that I'm grateful for the fact I was at an event. In fact, there was two women, one who had written a book, they were doulas and they were talking about this issue of black maternity. And so, um, you know, when I was there, I said, listen, you know, some of the women that run the library, I'm going to do this for African-American history, Month. this issue of the black family is a very pertinent issue. And it was scheduled previously. It's going to be on the 23rd. But sadly, a young brother who was a firefighter died in a fire. So they had to postpone mm-hmm. it until um, until this coming Saturday. The young brother had three children. He was only 30-something years old, had three children. I was like, wow, this is just incredibly sad that the young brother had to pass this way. But um, for whatever reason, we, there's aspects of how the universe works. I, I tell my children this all the time, that the universe has a plan. But sometimes it's hard for us to understand. And, and, and that's the truth. Mm-hmm. That's the truth. Because you things happen and you're like, I don't understand. And I used to ask my father all the time, you know, why do these things happen? How do I get clarity? How do I get through it? And he used to tell me that sometimes some things you can't understand when it's happening. Right. And, you know, you just hope that you can get through it, cope, Mm -hmm. and maybe reach back to share your experience with someone else to hopefully impact their lives. There's someone right now who's listening to this podcast and they're thinking, I want to do something for my community. I want to give back. I want to impact people's lives. Could you recommend or give any kind of advice how anybody would be able to do that? Because you are doing it. How would you approach that? Old, young, someone has the passion to help others. So there's um, a saying that we only usually know part of. And so the, the whole saying is, we have formed this circle as a sign of unity and strength. We want each one to be able to reach one so that each one can teach one. And that proverb, it takes a village. And so there's another dimension to that proverb. And that the beginning part of that proverb is you want to know, you want to ask, how are the children? And then the village will respond that the children are doing well. And so throughout my life, I've been incredibly fortunate that um, I've had the opportunity to partner with different people. But I think that all of us at some point have to learn to put our ego in our pockets and learn how to ask for help. And so the sooner that we're able, and then sometimes the people we ask Seems like they should help us and they may choose not to, but you have to dust off and keep moving. And But I think that the stronger we can build a village, the easier it is. And so when my children were growing up, you know, there were different people who helped us on this journey. And so their children needed a positive reinforcement from my children as my children needed it from them. And so the easier it is to find other parents, other people in the community who have interests about making sure that our children have the bright futures one of the things I used to tell my children and their friends is that I want you to have a future so bright, you've got to wear shades. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and so when we start building that village, it makes a profound difference because now, you know, you got sometimes the parent message needs to be heard. The children need to hear from someone besides the parent. And so we need people to reinforce the message that you're doing well, you know, to be 
go to school, you know, get good grades, you know, participate in activities, all those kind of things. The, the children know what the parents are going to say. Hearing from somebody else just reinforces it. And so the stronger that people can build a village, then the easier it is in order to move forward. So I was rushing home because I was at an event just before we started. And I saw one of the, um, they call them now county commissioners. And so I was explaining to them, New Jersey, sadly, has some horrible, horrible stats. New Jersey has the highest disproportionate rate of black to white wealth in the country. Has the highest disproportionate rate of black incarceration in the country. And so when I'm seeing a commissioner, there's a report that just came out that analyzes the data by county. Have you seen this? No. It will be in your inbox very short. <laughs> because what my mentor has taught me, you should always be on record. So I don't want her to be able to come back later and say, I didn't know. Right. And so when we see people, our advocacy has to be very clear. Right. And so the clearer we are about what we're advocating for. Right. Because justification is happening all over the country. Black folks are being displaced. And if we're not clear about the fact that we're being displaced. Uh, if you're in the Detroit area, rumor has it that Detroit, black folks are being displaced. In Harlem, black folks are being displaced. In Philadelphia, in Miami, different places all over the country, black folks are being displaced. In Washington, D.C., which we lovely used to call Chocolate City, right? And so we have to be really clear about making sure that if there's a way for us to identify the issue and take whatever the, the corrective steps are, that's our responsibility. So we're celebrating Black History Month. We talk about Malcolm and Martin and all the people who, but they passed the baton to us. So 50 years from now, when people are writing about black history in this period, who are they going to write about? And so if we're not doing what we're supposed to do, then what, what's that history chapter look like in the, from the 2000s to 2025? That's our chapter. And we need to be busy making sure that we're doing what we can do in our chapter. So that then our children, when they're adults, and our grandchildren and their friends can say, this is what our grandparents did. So for people who helped elect Barack Obama, that's a hell of a legacy to pass on to the next generation. For people who say to help elect Kamala Harris, it's a hell of a legacy to pass on to the next generation. And so we have to identify things that we can, are able to achieve, and invest whatever effort we need to in order to make it happen. That's a great point to end on. Someone's listening right now and they're like, you know what? I've got to get this book. Young Black Men Who Are Single Fathers. Baba and the crew. Where can they get that book? It's on Amazon. They go to Amazon and I'm not trying to enrich Bezos. He's got enough money. (laughs) (laughs) But if they email me, I will sign and send them a copy, you know, through priority mail. So that it can Get it from Bezos, they could get it for me. Last question. What do you think the future holds for not only the Black family, but for us as a race? So, Olivia, we've been counted out a lot of times. Think about how many times we've been counted out. And most people don't realize this. Slavery really didn't start in 1619. That's the date that the British started slavery here. But even before then, what was called Spanish Florida because the Spaniards were controlling Florida before the British controlled the rest of the country. In the 1500s, our ancestors were enslaved. So even if we were 1619, every law from 1619 to 1865, over 240 years, was intended to keep us enslaved. 
So our ancestors fought. They ran away. They burned the master's house down. They poisoned him. They, excuse me, broke tools. They did everything they could do to get free. And everything was done to keep us enslaved. So if you were enslaved in 1700, you had no idea that in 1865, 160 years later, that slavery would be over because there wasn't any indication it was going to change. And people get confused. New Jersey was the last northern state to end slavery. New Jersey the only mm -hmm. northern state to vote against Abraham Lincoln in 1860 and 1864. Right? New York, they call it Wall Street because the indigenous people, which people confusingly called Indians, were attacking the Europeans, so they built a wall to protect the Europeans from the Indians. That's how that name Wall Street came, right? New York was involved in the slave trade. All the Ivy League institutions have a slave history. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Rutgers, all of them were involved in the slave trade. And so it was not just happening in the South. It was all across the country. And so it would be very reasonable for someone in 17, 1800 not to believe they was going to end. We were written off. We were in, had the South won, we still would have been in slavery, right? I mean, so I want us to be clear about that. So what I forecast is that we are going to continue, despite all the obstacles and barriers that we face, we're going to continue to accomplish the great things that we have. We're going to continue to write books. We're going to continue to write plays. We're going to continue to make inventions. We're going to continue, like Mae Jameson and other black astronauts, go to space. We're going to continue to build Nigeria is the youngest country on the African continent. 25% of the people on the African continent are Nigerians. Nigerian is one of the fastest growing economies in the world. And so when you look at what not only taking place here, what's taking place in Africa and throughout the Caribbean, we are going to continue to excel despite all the obstacles and barriers that we face. If this fool gets back in the White House, it's gonna make it harder for us, but we have fought back crazy racist people before, we are going to continue to excel despite the obstacles that are in front of us. So y'all hear that? Always bet on black. Because right. we are a resilient people. Yes, we are. And we will survive. Yes, we are. We do. If, I mean, if you really think about all the things that we've been able to overcome and the, and the brutality and just so much mm -hmm. that we've been able to, to work through. I mean, if I look back in just one generation with my father, my father came up in Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. He was part of the first blacks allowed into the Marine Corps. And then now my brother, officer in the Marine Corps, attorney has his own firm. So, I mean, it's just you can see it if you look within your own family how far we have come. So I think that's encouraging for us because it seems, as I mentioned in the beginning of our interview, that we're being attacked. We're under assault, but somehow we're always able to wish a wood. <laughs> F-A-F-O, okay? <laughs> I wish somebody would. <laughs> That's us. We wish somebody That's right. would. That's right. That's right. That's right. So we have to we have to stay focused and stay on that and really attempt and try in whatever capacity that you can to lift people up like yourself who have the knowledge, who have the wisdom and are willing to share that with others is so important. And I'm just so glad that I was able to get you here on this podcast to share some of your wisdom with us, Mr. Davis. It's been a, a true pleasure. 
And I have learned a few things just talking to you. I'm like, let me find out. I'm going to have to go to Rutgers and take one of your classes <laughs> with my old dusty ass. I'll be sitting right up in there. <laughs> I'm sure you'd be a great student. I have no question. But I wanted to remember two things. Yes. My brother, Nelson Mandela, in the ANC, used to say, Aluta continua, which means the struggle continues. Most of us may not remember Brother Maurice Bishop from Grenada. And so Maurice Bishop and the New Jew movement came to power in Grenada. And their saying was, forward ever, backward never. Say that again. Forward ever, backward never. Backwards never. I love it. I love it. That's going to stay with me. Bill Davis, thank you so much. If someone wants to contact you once again, are you on social media, website? Tell folks where they can get in touch with you. Yes. So babaslegacy.com is my website. They can contact me there. I'm on LinkedIn, Bill Davis on LinkedIn. Um, My email, baba, B-A-B-A, at babaslegacy. And so there's various ways I'm, you know, open to uh, communicate with people in whatever form people find the most comfortable. And uh, Olivia, I really enjoyed and appreciate this conversation. I certainly hope that um, as we're winding down African American History Month, that all of us will think about who we are, what we are, what we've accomplished, what we want to contribute. And so I I operate by by the philosophy that we should come to the table with more than an appetite. Absolutely. Bill Davis, thank you again. Appreciate you taking the time. Continue success. Hope your event is successful. And I hope people gain some knowledge just from listening to this conversation. That's going to do it for the Olivia Fox podcast. I really hope you guys have enjoyed this. I know I have. I hope somebody has learned something. And I, more importantly, hope somebody is motivated to do something for themselves, their family, and their community. That's going to do it. We'll talk again soon. The Olivia Fox Podcast is produced and hosted by Olivia Fox. Executive producer Ken Johnson. Get the Olivia Fox Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, comment, and rate. Follow Olivia Fox on IG at Olivia Fox Radio. Follow the Mean Old Line Media Podcast Network at Mean Old Line Media. Get the Mean Old Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The Olivia Fox Podcast is a Mean Old Line Media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.